especially when we publish ours, which you've said earlier, you're, you're going, you've already started to see it. I'm going to tell you it's going to get worse. Hmm. You're going to start to say, oh, look, Campbell's lab says it doesn't work. The lab from Australia says it doesn't work. Uh, I, I think it's, I think people would be missing the boat if they were to, to say that. All right, everybody. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Bill Campbell. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you. Thank you for the, for the invite. Absolutely. So uh, as with all of my podcasts, we start with a charity donation. And Bill has been kind enough to just have mine go towards Operation Smile today. So I think if anybody's listened to this uh, a few times, at least, you've heard me mention Operation Smile. Uh, they do surgeries for children with cleft lip and palate. And as always, we'll have a link down below if you want to donate there as well. So, uh, Bill, I've seen you post on Instagram quite a bit. That's kind of how I first came about your stuff. And I actually have to, um, I don't know, give you credit because, first of all, you're very consistent. Uh, but secondly, there was, I don't, I wish I could go back. Instagram kind of is not the best as far as like finding previous interactions right? It's very hard to like, you can't search really for that sort of thing. And it was like months back, you posted something. And I, I'm, I don't, it's gonna bug me, I'll, I'll find it later. But I disagreed with it. Um, the answer, I, I thought it wasn't, I, there was like a lot of nuances to it. And so I made a post and um, I can be mildly disagreeable, not like Lyle McDonald level <laughs> disagreeable, but you know, a little bit. And you had a very courteous response and you basically just kind of like laid out your thoughts on it and said, oh, I agree with this, but also this. And like, it, it just like gave me even more respect for what you're doing. So I kind of just wanted to, to put that out there. And I think it's good because it, rather than get into like flame wars, which like I said, my, it wasn't like I was like attacking you. It was just like a little bit of a thing. Um, I think it's a good way to go about it because you, you know, obviously you are involved in research yourself and it's a good way to help more and more people learn from this, uh, this scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> thank you for the, for the story recollection. And it is, I'll say this, it's difficult. I'm trying to do a true false question on science. Right. It's always more nuanced than that. Totally. So I make sure that I have, uh, just so the way that I can do this comfortably, I just, I, the true false is what it is. And then I try to use my knowledge of that literature realm to then expand in the caption of, okay, here's some of the nuances, but yeah, for me to get all of the nuances. Yeah. Impossible. Never. Uh, but I'm glad. I mean, people disagree. That's how I learn. Like if I, I learn a lot from my students and then you probably taught me something that day that I'm like, Oh, <laughs> I noticed that. So, uh, so for people who don't know you, what is your background here? My, how far back do you want me to go? Just, uh, I mean, you can, you can go into all that as far as like getting into fitness yourself, um, and research. And I mean, now, like you mentioned, you have students, so let's, let's go over all of it. Okay. So first undergrad degree was in marketing and my first job was in sales. I used to sell uh, bug killer and weed killer did that yeah. for about two years. Wasn't real passionate about killing weeds. Yeah. So, I thought, well, maybe I should go back to school and do something that I actually like. And what I liked at that time was lifting weights, bodybuilding, sports nutrition, dietary supplements. Love that stuff. Couldn't wait to get done with my workday to go do that stuff. So then I made the decision to go back to school. I had zero science classes. So I had to literally start from the bottom. 
took probably about five years of part-time going back to school. Finally, after like one or two rejections, got into a master's program in exercise physiology. Then I stayed at that school, it was Baylor University for my PhD. I basically told my wife, where do you want to live? And that's where I'll apply for jobs. And she said somewhere warm because she was from Maryland <clears throat> and she was tired of the cold mornings, scraping off the windshields and, right. and you know, <laughs> that lifestyle. So we ended up uh, very blessed by God to get a job offer from the University of South Florida. And that's where I've been for the last, going on 14 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm a professor of exercise science. My research focuses on sports nutrition and physique enhancement. And I, I, my passion is physique enhancement. I like to say that my research helps people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So not everybody's a bodybuilder. Not everybody's obese. There's this group of people who, are, who just like fitness and they tend to go on diets. So my research kind of serves them. Like how should they diet? And all of the questions that come into that. So they, they're kind of making them look like bodybuilders without actually stepping on stage. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I have to give people like you and Lane Norton credit where you kind of got into the, like as like a real career, you got into fitness earlier than like now it's more common, right? There's a lot of different paths to do it. Um, but I think Lane is probably a similar age to you, um, maybe like a little bit younger, yep. but, but, uh, you know, he's been doing this for a long time. And, you know, when I was going through high school, um, and even like early college, I knew like, well, I want to be a doctor, but I didn't like, I love fitness. Like even since I was, like I said, 12 years old. Um, but I, I just didn't really think of it as like a career move. And, um, fortunately now I'm able to still have, you know, this avenue for it. But I think it was just less common than to like, other than, you know, to be a professor, I was actually science as well through undergrad, but I don't know, it just, it never, it was not really a thought of mine to like take it that way. Um, but it's cool now that like it is, it's much more common and we see people actually like really being able to make a career out of it if they want to make it their whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I, I don't know why, like I loved exercise. I played sports. I didn't even know why I, why I didn't consider exercise science when I was in college. Like. I was just, I mean, I was really dumb, like just not mature, <laughs> not wise. I went to college to play basketball. That was my number one motivation. And I was like, oh, I guess I'll get a degree while I'm here too. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't even play. Like I wasn't even that good. So it was kind of, <laughs> that was my motivation, but I never saw the court. That's funny. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Lane, Lane is unique in the sense that he was one of the first people to make it a career without being in academia right. with, I'm sorry, with a PhD. Yeah. Uh, now, Ooh, it's, you're starting to see it all the time. Now people getting PhDs and just to, to be a, a high level coach. Or right. Yeah. But yeah, I would say he was one of the first, he, he's really a trailblazer. And I'll yeah. say this, the number of people that he has really helped um, with their own careers. It, it's incredible. He's, 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 um, he, he, he deserves all the respect he gets. And he's definitely done a lot. So you mentioned, you know, you kind of research as far as like best ways for people to diet. I believe you worked, you work with Cody Hahn. I, I know Cody. I, I don't think we've ever actually collaborated. 
Okay. Anything. I don't think we're even on a co-author, but. <clears throat> okay. Well, I, I remember him recently dying down and I'm fairly sure he at least cited a study. You did a, a, a study on refeeds or diet breaks. Yes. Am I remembering that correctly? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, geez, I don't know. Was that a year ago now? When was that? We published that. Yeah. March of 2020. 20, okay. So almost exactly a year. Um, and so I, I'm going to be talking with Mental Henselmans pretty soon and, and we're going to talk about refeeds and diet breaks. Um, and I made a video on that, but can you, it's, it's interesting because um, I've talked to a few people recently about how I always just thought like it was like standard, like everybody does refeeds now, like only if you went back to like the seventies, those guys weren't doing it, but now everybody who knows what they're talking about has refeeds. And now I'm, it's starting to go the other way where I'm actually seeing more and more people not incorporate them. Um, and there's a few arguments against them. So can you just kind of lay out what that study showed and what you were looking for? Yes. Yeah, I'll do that. And just since you mentioned Menno Henselman's, Menno actually um, sponsored or funded one of our most recent diet break studies. Okay. The, uh, we will probably have that submitted for publication uh, probably within a month. And when I'm done with the refi study, I, if you want, I can go ahead and talk about that. But yeah, make sure definitely. when you have him on there that you thank him on my behalf for okay. funding that study. And we're going to be presenting on that um, as well at the ISSN conference in a few weeks. Okay. So let me take one step back about our diet refeed study or diet break studies and, and give this umbrella term called nonlinear dieting, because <clears throat> that kind of encapsulates all of these things. So nonlinear dieting is, well, what it is not is it is not dieting for three months, four months, six months straight without ever taking a break from your diet. Nonlinear dieting implies you're gonna take a break. Diet breaks typically are defined as when you take at least one week, sometimes two or even more weeks off from your diet that are typically planned breaks, and then you go back on the diet after that. Refeeds are more of a daily approach. So you usually do one, two, maybe even sometimes three days per week. Usually they are consecutive days where once again, you're taking a break. So what we did, and I, when I'm done with telling you what we did, I can give you kind of just my thoughts on exactly what you said. Everybody's yeah. doing them. Now nobody's wanting to do them. I, I can give you my thoughts on all of that. Sure. The, so the refeed study that we did, we had two groups of resistance trained people. These were males and females. They dieted for seven weeks each. One group, we said, you're going to have a 25% caloric deficit for seven straight weeks. You're never going to take a break. And they did that. They lifted in my lab. I think it was four days per week, 25% caloric restriction. And their protein intake, I believe, was two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. The next group is 1.8 or two. The other group, we said, you're also going to diet for seven weeks, but every weekend you're going to take a break and you're going to increase your calories back to maintenance levels. So you're going to, you're actually Monday through Friday, you're going to have to be at a 35% caloric deficit since we're increasing you to a hundred percent of your calories on the weekend. That way, both groups averaged a 25% caloric restriction. And by the way, both groups lifted in my physique lab. So we were able to supervise every rep, every set. We tracked every gram or they, they tracked every gram of carbs, protein, fat. So they tracked their macros throughout the study. And what we found after that study was the group that took the refeeds, 
they were able to significantly retain their dry fat-free mass better than the group that did not. And when I say dry fat-free mass, basically, if you divide the body into two compartments, you have fat and then you have everything else. We call everything else fat-free mass. But the main tissue in exercise science that, uh, that goes up and down with training and dieting is the skeletal muscle compartment. Organs change a little, bone density changes a little, but that's not, they're not really changing as much as muscle mass does. So we say fat-free mass, and, but what we really mean or what we're really focusing on is muscle mass. When I say dry fat-free mass, what we did was we also measured total body water in these subjects, and we subtracted that out because they were increasing carbs on the weekends. As they increased their calories, we told them, get your extra calories from carbs. And because at the end of the study, we didn't want to test them with increased carbs, which if you have more carbs in your body, in the muscles and liver, that also tends to attract water or it does draw in water. And that can skew your results to make it look like you have more muscle. So we wanted to make sure that we did everything we could to guard against that. So we made them wait two days after the weekend to do their post-test and we subtracted body water. In addition to that, if you didn't subtract out the water, they still maintained their muscle mass, their fat-free mass better. It just wasn't significantly different. And they also significantly maintained their metabolic rate. Once again, not statistically different than the, than the, the, the group that didn't take the refeed. So can I pause you just for a second? So you're saying that there was a statistical difference in dry fat-free mass. Um, but when it was, when you did not subtract water, you saw a trend maybe, but it was not significant. The difference, is that what you said? Yes, correct. Now, if you look at it from changes of baseline, there was a, um, the group that didn't take the refeeds, they had a significant, a significant loss of fat-free mass. They had a significant loss of metabolic rate. The refeed group compared to baseline, did not have a significant loss of metabolic rate. They did not have a significant loss of muscle mass. But when you look at the comparison from the between groups perspective. Right. That's just interesting to me was, because you would think that the refeed group, you know, one of the big arguments with these studies is, oh, well, they only showed more lean body mass because they measured too soon and they were retaining more water from the refeed. So I would think from that, that by including water, there'd be an even bigger difference. You know what I mean? Um, but as would I, that's yeah. what I would think. But maybe if I'm just thinking like, to if you include water, you're looking at larger total numbers. So maybe the percentage difference is smaller and then that's why it was not significant. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, and then when we say not significant, it wasn't. But we right. had, I think, 27 people. And one of the problems with significance testing or probability testing, if we would have had double the amount of subjects, right. that we, I'm pretty sure that we would have been able to then declare a significant difference. So if you look at, and we reported this, if you look at all the effect sizes of these changes, that everything is clearly in favor of the refeed group. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that refeeds are some magical approach. We can talk, we can, we can discuss potential issues because um, there was no difference with fat loss. It made no difference at all for fat loss. But 
in this, in, at least in our study, it did make a difference with dry fat free mass. But yeah, it's funny. You, you're, you, um, you thought the same thing I did. Cause I remember analyzing the data and I didn't do the dry fat free mass first. I just did the, the straight up fat free mass. And it was a trend. It was like 0.0, you know, 0.09, 0.07. I don't remember. I'm like, Oh, well, look at that. But I know when I do the dry fat free mass, that'll probably kick it out. And right. it, it didn't, it actually yeah. brought it into significance. It was right. Odd. So, and so for those, cause you know, we tend to, I think there's like, you know, like the gen pop who doesn't understand that it's like mostly about calories, right? And then a lot of times in the evidence-based industry, we say, you have to have a calorie deficit, you have to have a calorie deficit, and you do, but it is interesting that in this situation, they had the same, so you mentioned they had the same um, calorie deficit, right? And they lost the same amount of fat, which makes sense, Um, but they did not lose the same amount of muscle tissue. So could you maybe speak on that? Like, even though yeah, same fat loss, but overall tissue loss was not the same, right? Even though the calories were the same. So that it could be a little bit of a discrepancy there. Yeah. So I can give two theories on why I think we, we found that. And if, if somebody were to say, well, that's it, whatever you tried your best for water. It, I just don't believe the outcome. Mm-hmm. If you look at the metabolic rate, when you lose muscle mass, your metabolic rate goes down. The metabolic rate went down half as much in the refeed group, which would imply that they had more muscle mass. And again, we, they did have more dry fat free mass. So again, the, the entire picture points in a positive direction for increased muscle mass. Two thoughts are, one's more global. Uh, when you're dieting, everything about that diet is catabolic which is mostly good because you want to burn fat when you diet. So you want to, you want to catabolize fat. Unfortunately, most people will also catabolize some muscle mass. So this group that was in this seven week continuous diet without ever taking a break had seven straight weeks of a catabolic environment that their body was in. The other group for at least two days or yeah, for two days out of seven, weren't in a caloric deficit. They weren't in a catabolic environment for those two days. Is it possible that that helped maintain? It's possible. Uh, what, we, what we do know is that their training volume wasn't any different. We looked at that. Um, remember, we supervised that, so we had very good control on that. The other theory or hypothesis that I think could help explain this is because we told them to increase their calories on the weekend, from the deficit back to maintenance, we said, do this in the form of carbs. Like don't increase fat, protein, keep the same. We know that increased carbs will increase insulin production and insulin has a anti-catabolic effect. So it will slow down or suppress muscle protein breakdown. So it's possible that by spiking carbs for two days, that they had an elevated insulin response certain days out of the week. And the retention of muscle mass was from a slowing of muscle protein breakdown. Now, I can't say that's what happened because we didn't measure insulin. We didn't measure rates of muscle protein breakdown. But those are the two thoughts that I have that could help explain why we observed what we did observe. Yeah, I I think it, it makes sense. And I just pointed out because you know, people tend to look at it like 
if you're so on the side of like, it's only calories and like nothing else matters as far as like timing or anything like that, I think you can start to miss some little things. Um, so like, for example, one thing I've mentioned, and I don't advocate this at all, but when I've had like massive cheat days, like I used to do like once a week, like 12,000 calories, right? Really don't recommend it, but that was just what I did a lot of times in college and stuff. And I could diet on a weekly average that was way higher because that 12,000 brought it up so high. And like, I'm probably not absorbing all of it. You know, 12,000 is a lot of calories, right? So somebody could say, oh, look, I'm, you know, let's say I have to diet on 2000 calories, but with a huge refeed, I can diet on 2300 calories. It's like, well, same average calories. How is that working? But I think when at that extreme, you're looking at other issues. Um, but then, like you said, like hormonally, um, you, you didn't study that, but hormonally that could affect like, is it coming from muscle or fat? Obviously there's a million other variables. I'm just saying like it, calories are super important. I put that as like number one, but it's not the only thing to look at. Right. Right. Um, and then let me just switch real quick to our diet break study. This was yes. in resistance trained females. We had two groups, one this group, is the one dieted. that you're doing now with Menno or yes. Okay. Yep. It's, it's done. We're just okay. literally waiting on, well, we're just analyzing, we're double checking every single variable. Um, we're going to an analyze the statistics just one more time to be sure. Uh, Madeline Seedler's my, uh, what was my research coordinator. She's now getting her PhD. So I want to give her thanks for, for coordinating that study. And again, for Menno for funding that study, the one group, six straight weeks of dieting, no diet breaks whatsoever. The other group had two one-week diet breaks. They dieted two weeks, took a one-week diet break, took two more weeks of dieting, then took their second diet break, and then they ended with two final weeks of dieting. So both groups, six weeks of dieting. The diet break group that had an eight-week intervention because of these two one-week periods. What we found with that is no differences in pretty much anything physical. So no differences in fat mass lost, no differences in muscle mass retained, no differences in metabolic rate. The one difference was in a psychological questionnaire that we gave them. And that was on the three-factor eating inventory. One of them, one of, one of those domains is called disinhibition, which is basically this feeling of uncontrolled hunger. Like you're just not going to be inhibited any longer that was trending higher for the group that was dieting and it was trending lower for the group who had the diet breaks. And that was a significant difference okay. in for, for, for that finding. So again, that was psychological. Um, I don't know if you saw the diet refeed or the diet break study that Jackson Payos just published. It's um, I'm not sure it's, yeah, that one was a longer period of time with uh, males and females, I believe. And they basically reported the same thing that we did. Okay. So now, you, especially when we publish ours, which you've said earlier, you're, you're going, you've already started to see it. I'm going to tell you it's going to get worse. Hmm. You're going to start to say, oh, look, Campbell's lab says it doesn't work. The lab from Australia says it doesn't work. Uh, I, I think it's, I think people would be missing the boat if, if they were, if they were to, to say that, I think people would also miss the boat if they think that diet breaks or refeeds are somehow giving them a huge metabolic advantage. Sure. Yeah. It, it's honestly, it's so fascinating to me because this is one of the few topics that I've really 
been open to changing my mind. I mean, not like I'm always open to changing my mind with evidence, but you know, there's just not a lot that has changed in terms of like the real big things, you know, I mean, a lot of studies that come out, it, it's like, well, there may have been a small change, but more evidence is needed. Like there's not a ton where it's like progressive overload, calorie surplus, like these things, like the big pillars. Right. But yep. refeeds, like I said, I mean, I really thought like you were nuts if you didn't have a refeed like four or five years ago, because I just, everybody I knew did them. And uh, hearing more and more people who don't do them, um, Steve Hall has got the Revive Stronger podcast, Abel Chabai, he's got a podcast. And um, those are the two who I just remember, it was literally, we were just kind of like talking about whatever, and they both said they didn't. And I was so surprised. And since then, it's kind of become like a pet topic. Um, but with the uh, the refeed one that you talked about that had the actual, like the one Cody Hahn talked about with like within the week. It's funny because for a while I was like, okay, so I did like the massive cheat days I mentioned. And then I was like, well, those probably aren't the best. And then um, there was maybe some more re research. Like Lyle McDonald had a book, um, Ultimate Diet 2.0. And it would talk about like two or three day refeeds. And the idea being, well, leptin and things like that, like they're not going to change with one day. But if you have a two or three day period, that could be beneficial. And then I forget when like my first big diet break study came out. Um, but that was really showing like a lot of people were starting to jump on the bandwagon, like, okay, you know what, don't go crazy, just eat at maintenance, but have a one or two week diet break. I mean, I remember like this was like Lane Norton talked about, this was like a big thing. And I even gravitated towards that. My, my past cut last year was probably my most successful ever. And I would do three weeks of dieting, one week of diet break. And like you talked about, there's a psychological factor here. I think a huge part of it is what works for somebody's psychology, right? Like, you know, some people I know they have a cheat and they just, you know, they can't control themselves anymore. Um, I never had that problem, but I know people who do. So it's just interesting to see how much it's going back and forth. Do you have, like, if you had somebody say, Hey, I have 30 pounds to lose. Um, I think probably the fatter somebody is the less necessary. Well, I could even see caveats to that, but let's just say they're starting at like 18% body fat and they want to get really lean. Do you have a general recommendation that you would say incorporate um, diet breaks or incorporate refeeds or are you not really set on anything at this point? I, going back to who, who my research serves, it's the lifestyle physique enthusiast. Mm -hmm. So for that person, I, th I think they're wise because one, what if you do want to go on vacation? What if you do have social events or birthday parties or whatever? Instead of cheating or thinking, oh, I can't do that. No, put it into your lifestyle. Plan for an increase in calories on the weekend. Research shows that people eat more food on the weekends. I know I do. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it makes sense for people. Now, a bodybuilder, when they have a deadline, they have to step on stage, depending on where they're currently at. They may not have the luxury to do that. But I, I would suggest that, every, that, that most people do this. Is it going to give them an advantage? No. I don't, I don't think it gives them an advantage. Eh. Looking at data from my lab, potentially it will maintain muscle mass a little bit better, uh, dry fat-free mass, potentially. Sure. Other research would suggest you don't get that benefit. Okay. I will say that the uh, benefits of a diet break become more and more valuable, potentially valuable, the longer and longer somebody has been dieting or the more severe their caloric deficit. Because the whole reason that you would employ a diet break 
or employ a refeed is to offset the negative adaptations that dieting induces. So again, if you're dieting for three, four, five, six months in a row, you're going to have some metabolism that's slowed down. The utility of a diet break in, within that period, I think, makes sense. One of the reasons that we were hypothesizing that we didn't see any benefit with our diet breaks and our resistance trained females was because there was no utility for it to help. They didn't lose muscle mass. They didn't have a suppressed metabolism. So what's it going to help? Well, the answer was apparently nothing. Maybe had we extended it longer or been much more aggressive on the, on the caloric deficit. So when I, when, I approach, when I look at it through that lens, it's possible that bodybuilders would have a more of a benef potential benefit from using these than general pop. But I think physiologically. Yes. Yep. Physiologically. But general pop people, I think it fits lifestyles very good. And then lastly, when would I do it? I would have people institute this or plan to institute it when they're no longer responding to their caloric deficit. So as they hit plateaus, I would decide ahead of time, hey, when you hit a plateau, let's now do a week break and then come back to the diet and let's see if that can kick kickstart things. Here's something else that we know from the literature. The literature would suggest that they're either helpful, Matador study, our refeed study, or that they're, or that they don't help four or five of them or the other one. Yes. But they're never harmful. You won't right. find one example of taking a break, causing greater fat gain or causing more muscle mass loss. Now the one obvious detriment is it's going to take a longer period of time to get to your goal, but I will never ever convince somebody to go faster with their weight loss journey. In fact, the slower, the better, because I believe the slower you take to get to your destination, the more likely it is that you've picked up habits that you can maintain as part of your daily lifestyle. Right. So yeah, a lot of great points there. And um, I, I just want to be specific because that's, I, I know there are certain things and you touched on most of it. If I was listening to this like 10 years ago and I'd I'd want to be like, well, what about in this situation, in that situation? So um, the only caveat I would say is when you said it, it never has a negative, and I would agree the research pretty much it's, it's either positive or neutral with the caveat that those individual, there are some people who really seem to like, just psychologically, if they have a cheat and it doesn't like necessarily have to be like this, like, you know, what we consider junk food meal, but some people really seem to be, and you could argue this is not the healthiest mindset, but they seem to be like on track. And if you tell them, Hey, have this refeed or, or have this diet break, um, I still think it's good for them to learn to do those things. But I also think it's important to know where they are in their kind of journey, because for some people that might set them off and then it's a hard, it's hard to get them back on track. Um, but again, that's, that's where like, I think individual coaching and, and specific recommendations, kind of like your Instagram post, right? It can only be so specific. If we're talking general recommendations here, it's hard to be so specific to somebody's you know, individual circumstances. And then the only other thing I would say, as far as the psychological versus physiological, I think we and myself included like to have the answers of like, is it psychological or is it physiological? Like which, cause like if you're saying, well, I recommend it, it's helpful, but it's like, at the end of the day, they kind of play off of each other, right? If you psychologically, you're having a really hard time dieting, then in the real world, even if it's actually physiologically superior, if you can't stick to it, it doesn't really matter, right? 
Um, but I also understand people who would say, look, like that's fine, but I also just want to know what the right answer is. If assuming hundred percent compliance and you touched on that, you said somebody who's maybe, um, living this lifestyle or maybe higher body fats, you think it's, if I'm, I just want to clarify, you're saying psychologically, you think it makes sense. It fits into the lifestyle, birthdays, vacations and whatnot, but physiologically, probably not much of a difference unless you're really getting lean and dieting for a long period of time. Would you say that's a general good summation there? Yes. And, but I would also draw in the Matador study where it did, there was a clear benefit to diet breaks and that was in obese males. That was just a very aggressive caloric restriction. I think it was around, okay. you know, over 30, it was like around 30, 33%, 35%, maybe close to 40%. Yeah. So there's the one study that got everybody excited about diet. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And my general stance, I think is very, very similar to yours. Um, I was curious, you talked about Menno funding a study and I, I know of people who said, Oh, can we do this study? Can we do this study? I don't know if many people, even myself included know what it entails to fund a study and, and what is it literally just, Hey, here's a donation and you use this to, get supplies for the studies or how does that work? That's, that's a very good assessment. So essentially in let's talk like in Menno's case, they gave money to the university. So it doesn't go to me. So the university manages that money. And then what I do is I say, Hey, I need these supplies. Or if I want to pay these subjects, then we don't pay our subjects. Mm. Um, for that study, I know we bought, uh, we bought a lot of scales, bathroom scales or home scales for the subjects because we wanted to see what happened on a daily basis during their diet breaks. So we bought tons of scales. That was a large part of that budget. Um, and then the other thing, yeah, is supplies. Like you, you have um, uh, RMR, you have ultrasound gel costs. You have the university has something called indirect costs where they'll take money off, you know, just to basically pay for the air conditioning, the lights, the, the electricity to run the labs. Is, uh, uh, good. Um, are these college students? Pretty much everybody's a college student in the study. Uh, oh, for, uh, in that study, oh, most were, we had, we had some non-college students, but I would, if, if I were to estimate probably 80% were college age, like 18 to 24. Okay. Um, and, and so I'm just curious how, I think it takes a rare college student to be super strict on a diet like that. So how do you vet those people out to say you're eating like this exact number of calories? Or are they guided on how to track it on, you know, an app or, or whatnot? Yeah. So for that study and, and very typical of most of our studies, they have to be resistance trained. And we've gone as far as saying, Hey, you have to lift X amount on the squat or the deadlift. Mm -hmm. We didn't do it for that study, but they have to be resistance trained. And then what we do is if they don't already know how to track their macros, what we, we, we train them. So every subject in our studies, and this is where we have a lot, we I have a large uh, research team. It's about 25 uh, undergraduate and graduate students. Every subject has a personal nutrition coach. And that nutrition coach, which is on my staff, it's their job to help the subject. So before the study starts, we, we educate them or train them on how to track their macros. Then we have a run-in period before we start the diet where they're building on this skill. Cause it's a skill like you, you get better at tracking if you haven't done it before. 
And that's also the period of time where we're monitoring their to make sure that they're not gaining or losing weight. So we want them to be weight stable going into the study. So essentially we put a lot of effort behind the nutrition coaches who then work with the subject. So, and because we're always telling subjects, Hey, make sure you get 1.8 or 2.0 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. Those would be where they, we get questions. What's high protein. Uh, can I have this? And that's where our nutrition coaches are, are they're just very valuable, but yeah. to have every subject now, our nutrition coaches will typically have, you know, three or four subjects that they're responsible for, but that's how we do it. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I didn't do a lot of research, but back in college, you know, I helped out with two papers and um, just, you know, it's very easy to sit there and say like, Oh, we need this many people or this, but it's very difficult to get a, a lot of people to stick to a like rigorous plan, whether training or diet studies um, in both situations there. I think it's hard to get the studies that people want because it's like, who is available? Well, generally like the university students and, and you know, are they all going to be strict and stick to the plan? And I think you can get good results. I'm not saying that it's just, I think maybe a lot of people don't appreciate how hard it can be. Yeah. And, and it is, it's, it's, the amount of work to do a study is massive. I will say I have two advantages. One, I'm at a large university. Mm -hmm. So we are right about the same size as Penn State University. So I know yeah. you're familiar with that. Yeah, It's a huge college. And the other thing is females are, at least at this age, the college age, they are much more compliant than males. So there, there are several reasons why I do me. studies yeah. in females, but one of them is for that reason that they tend to be better research subjects. They, and let me state it differently. They just do what they're asked. They're doing. Yeah. They're um, yeah. I found that with um, coaching clients as well. I, I mean, I do train more men than women, but the, <laughs> the female clients I've had, it is much more of a like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. Got it. And then here's my check-in. <laughs> and like the guys, it's like, not all of them, but just generally speaking. Yeah. It, it's a little bit um, tougher. <laughs> Yes. Yep. Did you take any time to actually like train? I mean, I know you like help people out, but were you ever like training people as an exclusive thing or did you go right into like the academic route? No, I, during that transition from marketing to starting a master's program, I spent almost two years as a professional trainer. Okay. In the, um, the Washington DC area. So I worked at a couple different country clubs that had fitness centers built in. And I would uh, worked out of one mainly, but I would travel around them and, and, and train people, which that's my number one advice to anybody in fitness, work with people when yeah. you're young, get, I mean, not just online work with like, watch them squat, watch what, how are they feeling? Uh, experiment. It's the best experience you can get. Yeah. I think it's funny how yeah, there's this almost cliche of like, um, you know, like, oh, the guys in lab coats and they're not like in the trenches in the gym. And, and I don't know, maybe that was true a long time ago. But like all of you guys who I talk to who are professors are like have a lot of real world experience. I almost don't know anybody who's like doing a ton of research in the like fitness field who is not themselves like, you know, very passionate about actually doing it. Um, yeah, I mentioned Dr. Radimus, the guy deadlifted like 650 or 675, you know, um, Eric Helms is a beast. Lane Norton's a beast. I don't know your stats or anything, but you look pretty big. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure you got a lot of experience. 
Yeah, I, 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 I did a bodybuilding show when I was younger, but I'm nowhere. The my strength is not even close. Yeah. To them. Oh, Brad Schoenfeld's another. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I give him credit before he started doing these what I call like practical studies. They just weren't done. Every scientist was wanting to look at blood work or biopsies and. And I remember thinking, and I'm guilty of it too. My dissertation, we, we looked at cell signaling pathways in skeletal muscle. But I remember thinking, here you are trying to look at infinitesimal changes in this blood variable. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't even know how many days per week we should train. Right. <laughs> um, and that's how it was. You know, if you look at the, the evolution of that literature, all of these practical studies kind of took off in the last 20 years. Yeah. And Brad Schoenfeld... I, he deserves a ton of credit for 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 charting that course. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. So I'm just curious. I know we kind of wrap up maybe 10 minutes or so, but uh, as far as I heard, actually, Abel, somebody I mentioned before uh, who does a podcast, one of the questions I'm going to steal from him was, what would a study have to show for you to be thoroughly convinced one way or the other with the refeeds? Meaning, like, if you could do your ideal refeed study, um, you know, I guess that's not necessarily down to saying like number of subjects, but just like, how would you map that study out to more definitively show like clear benefits to refeeds, incorporate them or, or not? Well, one thing that I would do, let me just start with the first thought. One thing I would do differently next time compared to what we did this time. And, and mm-hmm. Menno, Menno has been very critical of our, the, the, our diet refeed study. So when you have him on, I don't know if you guys are going to talk about this, but I, I think yeah. he'll, he'll elaborate. Um, his advice was instead of us waiting on for two days after the last refeed, what we should have done was had them diet the entire week and then do the final body composition assessment. So I waited two days thinking, oh, that's enough. It would have been better to wait until the that that final, you know, until five days later. Yeah. Now, again, we still did subtract out the water. So we did everything we could. Uh, what I think I'm going to do, not this, not this upcoming year, but next year is I'm going to combine our diet, or do a new study, a, a refeed study, but I'm going to combine it with some other work that we're just completing now that uh, we're going to be presenting at ISSN and hopefully submitting for publication this year which is a rapid fat loss study. So I think what we're going to do is get people on a pretty severe caloric deficit, put one of them with a diet refeed two days on the weekend. And I don't know whether we do one or two cycles of that that, and another group that's not, and then, and then let's see what happens there. So essentially would a refeed be advantageous on a very short term, but, but very aggressive diet. Okay. And if that study were to show positive findings, that would be two from my lab that I, and and let me just say, every scientist believes their own data rather than other people's. Like when I see something in my lab, I'm like, that's it. But I'm also, I, I'm cognizant if somebody else tried to replicate the research in my lab, they may not get the same outcome. And that, right. and then what do you do with that? Well, we ask for a third study or a fourth study. So I'm, 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 I am cautious to say just because I observed it, that's fact, but I, but I do 
I, I, I don't doubt things that I see in my own lab, but then let's also look at this. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe, maybe I have thoughts going into this and I, I will be honest with, with our refeed study. There's no way I thought that was going to show anything. It's the same deficit. Um, nothing severe here. Like I, I was shocked. Right. And well, that's one of the things I was going to say is cause like a lot of times, like, I don't think most people who incorporate refeeds tend to think of having the same calories. It's usually like, okay, I'm, I'm eating 1800 calories and I'm just like doing the diet or, Oh, I've stalled. Okay. Time for a refeed. It ends up actually being a higher average. Um, a lot of the time, but then they'll see kind of like a whoosh and weight loss. I'll say maybe they dropped water because of cortisol changes or, or whatever else. But, um, I also, I think going into that, looking at that study, I might've thought, well, no, if it's exactly the same calories, it's going to be the same. And there's not enough, you know, I mean, you, you weren't talking massive changes in, um, you know, I think you said 25% versus 35% and then the, the refeeds, like, it's not like huge changes. Um, so I, I probably also would have suspected not much of a difference. So I'm, I'm there with you. Yeah. And I, I'm very excited about running that next, uh, rapid fat loss slash diet refeed study. Uh, cause it's, it's, it's two exciting things. It's refeeds and it's really aggressive dieting all in one. So, yeah, I, I'd have to, I mean, again, my bias is towards the refeeds there, but I really do think that the stronger, the deficit, the more impactful that refeed can be. Um, you might've said it already, but how significant are the refeeds going to be? Oh, uh, I, I, I haven't gotten that far. I okay. just, I, I have the, the, the skeleton. So okay. what will happen is uh, I'll bring my stu my students again, we're looking at 2023. Cause that's when we, it's amazing how far ahead you have to think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I'll have my students help with that. And I'll probably also bring that to my Instagram followers to let, to, to have people to say, Hey, what, have, what are me and my research team missing here? Can you yeah. give their insight? I would, and, and I know uh, another uh, doctor, friend of mine, who's, who's all about refeeds. He does a refeed every uh, fourth day. His is actually, his. this is his method, just stay lean, like all the time. It's interesting. Um, three days at like a deficit, fourth day is a significant um, surplus. He would argue, and, and I kind of agree that a lot of the refeeds in studies are not high enough, um, that they, they're basically a refeed is like maintenance. Whereas yes. he would say, no, like, like what, what is a 2,600 calorie refeed doing? Like have like a 3,500 or a 4,000 calorie refeed. So if I could have any input there, I'd say make the refeeds a little bigger and, and see if there's a difference there. Yeah. In our study to your, to, to your statement, it was based upon maintenance level calories. That's where we, and we said, don't go over that. Right. So yeah, it was not a, was not a planned surplus. Now, technically, it could have been a little surplus if they sure. had metabolic adaptation over the course of the seven weeks. Right, right, for sure. So, well, man, I mean, I, I think it's awesome that you're doing the research. I'm definitely going to be uh, tuning in. I'm sure we'll get you back on at some point and see whatever other updates are kind of going on in the field. And I do, like I said, I have Menno coming on this Sunday, actually. So I will, uh, I will go over a lot of this stuff as well. Awesome. Awesome. That'll be a great interview. Yeah. So, uh, for people who aren't familiar with you, I will have your Instagram down below. Uh, definitely, definitely worth checking out and following. Are there other places that people can find your work? Uh, no, that's, that's it. Okay. That's, it. that's all I do. It's, no TikTok it's... account. No, uh, anything like that. <laughs> no, I, I'm, 
I, I would like to say that I'll have a website out later this year. Um, but I, I still think Instagram would be the best place to follow my, my work. Yeah. Awesome. man. all right, well, I will have that down below and uh, thanks again for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation.